0: hey i'm jake Brennan, and i want to tell you about disgraceland the award-winning music and true crime podcast that i host disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly fleetwood mac nipsey hustle cardi b ozzy osborne taylor swift tupac the beatles amy winehouse jay-z the grateful dead and so many more this is not the music history you've heard before Get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock Double Elvis. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Lenny Kravitz. A man out of time, Lenny crashed into the music scene of the late 80s like a funk-tinged flower child. Vamping like Jagger, shredding like Hendrix, crooning like Teddy Pendergrass, he took a shot across the bow of a rock scene that was sliding into so seriousness and the persistent mope of grunge and alternative rock. Decked out in vintage threads, he finished out the millennium with a record four Grammy wins for Best Male Vocalist. He worked with Michael Jackson, David Bowie, Curtis Mayfield, and Jay-Z, and penned and produced Madonna's most controversial single. But this is not about Lenny Kravitz. This is about Lisa Bonet, one of television's biggest stars by the time she was 17, a 90s-style icon whose marriage to Kravitz cost her her most famous ongoing role at the hands of one of show business's most carefully concealed predators. This story is about a girl. Lisa Bonet sat anxiously in the audition room with two other Denise Huxtables. Crammed in along with them were three possible Theo Huxtables, three potential Vanessa's, and three adorable, if nervous, would-be Rudy's. They had run the gauntlet, making it through rounds of auditions to end up in this room. One by one, each of the top three choices for the roles was brought to meet the producers, the directors, and Bill Cosby himself. Cosby wasn't as culturally ubiquitous as The Cosby Show would soon make him, but the kids knew him from television, whether it was picture pages or Fat Albert or ads for Jell-O pudding pops. There wasn't much chatter in the room. The kids were paralyzed by nerves, but the other Denises had gotten chatty, whispering secrets and leaving Lisa on the outs. It was nothing new for the 16-year-old, the daughter of a Jewish mother and a black father who split when she was barely a year old, Lisa Bonet was a perpetual outsider. When she was 13, she informed her mother she'd no longer be going to temple. She didn't like the way the other girls looked at her. The black kids at her school shunned her because she was too white. And as far as the white kids were concerned, she was black. She was neither, but both, which meant she was on her own most of the time. But it stung, being the odd girl out in this temporary triad, unable to share the stress of waiting out the decision. One girl raised her voice loud enough so Lisa could hear. She's not going to get it, she said to her new friend. She has braces. Lisa Bonet ran her tongue over her teeth. She clawed at her cuticles, a nervous habit for a girl who otherwise exuded cool confidence and a zen-like detachment. She thought about her mother. They had argued that morning, the massively important nothings that mothers and daughters argue about, and Lisa left for the audition in a huff. She drew on that anger in her chemistry read with Felicia Rashad, already cast as the Cosby Show's matriarch. Lisa had hoped it had given her reading the rebellious teen vibe the casting folks were looking for, but contemplating her braces, she felt like nothing more than a little kid. The director entered the audition room. Twelve heads swiveled toward him. He thanked everyone for their patience and read four names off his clipboard, summoning the new Huxtable kids forward. Two discarded Denises sucked their perfect teeth at Lisa Bonet, who flashed an easy smile full of wires as she and her newly joined siblings rose to take their roles. The kids followed the director down a long hallway to meet their new dad. The Cosby Show was the capstone of a decade and a half of self-reinvention for the comic. He got his start as the Black stand-up comic who didn't mention race. But the assassination of Martin Luther King had forced prominent Black entertainers to take a stand on the issue. Cosby carved out education as his territory, appearing regularly on the PBS educational show The Electric Company and creating Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids a kids' cartoon show intercut with Cosby, delivering valuable lessons directly to the audience. He went so far as to complete a doctorate in 1976. His dissertation was on the pedagogical value of Fat Albert. He pitched the Cosby show to networks following the box office success of his stand-up concert film, Bill Cosby himself, a sort of backdoor pilot with jokes about Cosby's own family life. When the newly cast kids met him, he welcomed them warmly. As an aside to Lisa Bonet, he said, I love your braces. Once the new family was acquainted, the kids were released back to the care of their real parents. Lisa had come to the audition alone. She went to a payphone and called her mother, who answered with an annoyed what. It was enough to put Lisa's mind back in the fight. I just called to tell you I got the Cosby show, she snapped. Bye she slammed down the receiver. The mother-daughter fight was fleeting, and soon her mom moved to New York, where The Cosby Show was filmed. From the audience reaction to the pilot, everyone knew they had a hit on their hands, but no one could have predicted the phenomenon the show would become. NBC lived in the ratings basement in the early 80s, and The Cosby Show single-handedly saved the network establishing Thursday nights as their exclusive domain for a decade. The Cosby Show was radical in depicting an upper-class Black family, in stark contrast with media portrayals which, since the government's controversial Moynihan Report in 1965, was obsessed with showing Black families as impoverished and broken. Some critics complain that the affluent Huxtables, in their immaculate Brooklyn Heights brownstone, weren't representative of Black experience and thus weren't authentic. Lisa Bonet didn't mind. People had been telling her she wasn't Black enough her whole life. Cosby didn't mind either. He was showing America what he thought a Black family ought to look like, respectable, with kids who didn't talk back, and a father who knew best. The show's success rocketed the cast of kids to stardom but none more so than Lisa Bonet. Quiet and unassuming, she found herself profiled in teen magazines, trading quips with David Letterman on late-night television. The family appeared repeatedly on the cover of that 80s living room staple, TV Guide. Somewhere in California, an aspiring young musician picked a copy up off a friend's coffee table and stared at the cover, transfixed. He pointed at Lisa Bonet. That's the girl I'm going to marry, Lenny Kravitz told his friend. However, she felt about stardom, Lisa kept up her cool exterior, maintaining the attitude that, after all, it was just TV. She told an interviewer she had no intention of acting for more than 10 years. I want to get married young and stay married forever, she said, and then have kids and then go away and never see America again. You know, I'm so tired of this place. But within those 10 years, she had aspirations bigger than being America's favorite daughter. She quickly became disillusioned with the show. In the second season, the writers added a new Cosby kid, displacing Bonet's character as the eldest daughter and muddying her role in the family's dynamics. There was the adorable Moppet, the bratty middle child, the teen son struggling to understand his father and himself, and now an accomplished eldest child, with Denise Huxtable floating somewhere in the mix. Defined by Lisa's portrayal and look, she was a character type that pop culture didn't have a name for, a blueprint for the -the around-the-way girls that would hit a stride in 90s films like Do the Right Thing and Poetic Justice and be praised in song by LL Cool J. But trapped in a family sitcom, the character lacked the flinty edge and steel-eyed sexuality that would mark that future archetype. The mostly male writing staff, more interested in the show's father-son dynamic, hadn't thought about Lisa's character beyond quirky. She started showing up late to rehearsals and filming, sometimes not showing up at all. This didn't sit well with Bill Cosby, who maintained complete creative control over the show. The Huxtable kids didn't backtalk to their parents the way most sitcom kids did, because Cosby didn't want to see any more of that on television. When Malcolm Jamal Warner, who played Theo, auditioned with Cosby, Warner delivered his lines in the whip-smart manner of a television teenager. Cosby paused the audition. "'Son,' he said, "'would you talk that way to your father?' Warner's pivot of his portrayal into a good-natured, respectful young man landed him the role." When Lisa started missing rehearsals, a darker side of Bill Cosby emerged. He couldn't write her character out. Denise Huxtable was second in popularity only to Bill Cosby's own character, especially with teenage boys. But he could give her less and less to work with. Lisa was acting like she could take or leave the job. But being one of America's biggest television stars at 17 isn't the kind of thing you leave. And Cosby knew it. So she'd take the bones he threw her, which aggravated her disinterest with the show her inclination to blow off rehearsals and shoots. The bad dynamics escalated to the point someone was going to do something drastic. That's when Lisa Bonega offered a role as a voodoo priestess in the film that would narrowly dodge an X rating. Bill Cosby practically dared her to take it. Director Alan Parker was in New Orleans, scouting locations, So far, he'd found spots that were close enough to what he wanted, except that everything had to be changed. He was still finishing the script, an adaptation of a horror-noir novel that would become the film Angel Heart. The book was set in Harlem in the 1950s, but Parker thought its voodoo elements would be better served by shifting the second act to the Big Easy. What the British director learned... To his dismay, was that New Orleans in 1986 bore little resemblance to the city it had been 30 years earlier. He was hoping to find a little of that old black magic, but instead he was met with chicken's foot kitsch and tourist trap tarot readers. That was until he got out of town looking for a spot to stage one of the movie's big set pieces, a wild bacchanal of sex and animal sacrifice. Outside New Orleans, his people took him to what he called an old plantation workers village. Plantation workers being a polite euphemism for slaves. Visually, it was exactly what Parker was looking for. It could be shot as is, without the fussed-over dressing he gave to all his other sets to evoke the past. Beyond the visuals, there was something about the site. Places that witnessed unspeakable human suffering hold a sinister vibration in the soil. It would make the perfect home for the film's underage voodoo priestess, an as-yet-uncast character named Epiphany Proudfoot. Angel Heart was something between a dream project and an obsession for Parker, best known for musicals like Fame and Pink Floyd's The Wall, along with his gritty Oscar-nominated Midnight Express. The project languished in development hell for years. Even with Robert Redford attached as the lead, it couldn't get greenlit by a studio due to its bleak ending. Parker picked up the option on the book and retooled the script, although he left the ending unchanged. He went after Robert De Niro for the lead role, a World War II vet turned down-on-his-luck P.I. named Harry Angel. De Niro pored over the script, interrogating Parker on the smallest details and plot holes. Eventually, he passed on the lead, but agreed to a small part as the film's mysterious antagonist, one Louis Seffer. Say that one again. Louis Seffer. Yep, pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed his name. Failing to land De Niro, Parker offered the role to Jack Nicholson, who also passed. From there, he passed the other A-listers and ended up with Mickey Rourke, fresh off a commercial bomb with the erotic thriller Nine and a Half Weeks. Rourke passed on a role in the Oscar-bound Platoon to do Angel Heart, one of a number of poor choices that shaped his early career. Casting for Epiphany Proudfoot was a challenge all its own. The Byzantine script explicitly called for the character to be 17 years old, with no wiggle room on this plot point. The role would also require a very explicit and frankly bizarre sex scene with Mickey Rourke. It's fair to say everyone was surprised when it was announced the role would be taken on by Lisa Bonet, beloved daughter of television's most wholesome family. Parker claimed he had never seen The Cosby Show when he offered Lisa Bonet the part. If so, being British was the equivalent of living under a rock. No one in America could avoid The Cosby Show, a ratings juggernaut and critical darling. But Lisa Bonet was chafing at the meatless material the show was giving her. It was a sitcom, not Shakespeare. And even by those standards, Denise remained little more than the quirky, offbeat sibling. One note, Lisa wanted to shake her goody-good image, and Angel Heart would surely scuff up her squeaky clean veneer. Bill's not going to want you to do it, her agent warned her. The Cosby show was her steady paycheck, and she wouldn't take the part without permission from Cosby. With the offer in hand, she came into his office on the set in Queens. The door was open most of the time, and if it wasn't, cast and crew knew not to knock. She told him about the movie, and that it included a sex scene where she'd be fully nude. What are you asking me for, he said sounded like the gruff but affable dad he played on screen, but with none of the affection in his voice. Get out of my office and just do the film. It was the manner he often took with his on-screen children, letting them know they were free to make their own decisions. He didn't need to mention that along with that freedom came responsibility for the consequences. Lisa left the office with Cosby's blessing, or possibly his curse. Lisa studied up for the role of the voodoo priestess, delving into texts on rituals and practice. Director Parker brought in a choreographer who he'd worked with on Fame to help Lisa prepare for the scene in the plantation worker's village where, in the throes of a voodoo trance, she sacrifices a live chicken. The take number on the clapperboard was an ominous 666 for the midnight shoot that, according to the director, left everyone drained especially the chickens. Lisa shot her portions of the movie in June of 1986, while The Cosby Show was on hiatus, decamping from New York to New Orleans as the heat set in. The heat actually helped. Everyone in the film dripped and glistened with sweat. Steam rose from the streets like it was coming from hell below. When it came time to shoot the sex scene, Parker closed the set except for essential crew. Mickey Rourke was playing the Pet Shop Boys through the speakers Parker had brought when Lisa arrived, which Lisa considered extremely unsexy music. Once filming started, Parker had shut off Rourke's musical choice and put on Laverne Baker's Soul on Fire, an old blues tune that would be playing during the scene. He turned the volume way up for the shoot, a trick he said he used to highlight the absurdity of two virtual strangers simulating sex while the camera rolled in hopes it would dispel the discomfort. Lisa seemed unfazed, more comfortable than Rourke. With nine and a half weeks, he had made a movie so explicit it was shelled for two years before it could be released. But as Lisa would mention in interviews, Rourke shot all the steamiest scenes for that with his coat on. Being nude on camera was coming more naturally to the 18-year-old Lisa Bonet than the 35-year-old Mickey Rourke. The scene calls for the pair to make love in a cramped and sweaty New Orleans apartment. As their movements grow more passionate, rain leaks through the shabby clapboard ceilings. The rain darkens, turning to blood and pouring from the ceilings and the walls, drenching the actors. Parker shot four hours of footage for the scene, which he would cut into a frenetic, staccato 30-second sequence. Critic Pauline Kael, who hated the movie, said Parker edited like a flasher. At the end of the four-hour shoot, Parker, Rourke, and Lisa emerged from the room onto Royal Street, exhausted and covered in fake blood. The crew, who had waited anxiously on the magazine street sidewalks below, applauded. Shooting wrapped that summer and Lisa returned to The Cosby Show, but problems with Angel Heart began before it was released the Motion Picture Association slapped the initial cut with an X-rating, which was box office poison. The studio sent Parker back to the editing suite to clean it up. The trouble was that the situation came down to Justice Potter Stewart's definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. Parker was trying to placate the MPAA censors without knowing exactly what offended them. In the end, he cut 10 seconds of Mickey Work's thrusting buttocks from the scene, and it was enough to bring the movie in under the wire for an R rating. To promote the film, Lisa did an arty, topless photo shoot for Interview magazine, where she talked about the film, the sex scene, her boyfriend, and also a guy she referred to as her brother, Romeo Blue, the stage name at the time of her close platonic friend Lenny Kravitz. She barely mentioned her television family, but no one in TV land failed to make the connection. When the film came out in March 1987, the scandalous news of its narrowly avoided X rating and the allure of Lisa Bonet weren't enough to prevent a flop. Angel Heart achieved cult status, thanks in part to late-night cable earrings, but it failed to make back its production budget. More importantly for Lisa, it offended Bill Cosby's sense of decency. He called it, quote, a movie made by white America that cast a black girl, gave her voodoo things to do and have sex. Although he admitted he hadn't seen the movie. It doesn't offer my appetite anything, he told a reporter. Mail poured into NBC from Cosby show fans, of which there were millions. They were outraged. This was a family show, and families gathered every Thursday to watch together. The sanctity of that was sullied now. People loved Denise Huxtable, but they couldn't innocently watch her joshing her siblings and lightly vexing her parents without thinking about what their own teenagers might be doing when they weren't in front of a live studio audience. One thing was made clear to Lisa. Cosby had said she could do the movie he never said she should. He was not about to let a film like that burst the bubble of his perfect television family. Luckily for Lisa Bonet, Denise Huxtable was accepted to Hillman College, a fictional HBCU. The Cosby Show's most unexpected breakout star was getting a spinoff show. Romeo Blue headed backstage at the New Edition concert. His friend Kennedy had gotten him in. Kennedy was better known as Rockwell and was riding high on the success of his first single, Somebody's Watching Me. It didn't hurt that the track had Michael Jackson singing on the chorus, which is the kind of thing you arrange if your dad happens to be Barry Gordy, founder of Motown Records. Kennedy's career was blowing up, but Romeo's was failing to launch. He was couch surfing, bouncing between New York and L.A., picking up session work while he waited for his band to hit big. His sound was too new wave for R&B labels, but held over too much R&B for new wave's wider audiences. If there was a way to fuse the two styles he loved, he hadn't found it. Tonight was all about reveling in R&B, and Kenny dragged Romeo toward the green room. The elevator doors opened and there she was, the girl from the cover of TV Guide, the girl he once joked he was going to marry. Romeo Blue was face to face with Lisa Bonet and he didn't have a word to say. He stepped in and stood next to her, sweating as the doors closed. I like your hair, he blurted. Could there be a cornier line? With her long hair immaculately unkempt, she looked over at him. Taking in his locks, ironed flat, the grain dye faded until it was more a patina than a dominant shade. She smiled. I like your hair, she said. It wasn't much of a meet-cute, but then again, it wasn't really a thing at all. Lisa had a boyfriend, maybe more than one. Romeo was happily engaged. Talking in the green room, they found they had a lot in common. Two mixed-race kids who grew up in California, spending their early teens on the set of sitcoms. Her on The Cosby Show, set in New York. Him on a soundstage at Universal Studios in California, where his mother had starred on The Jeffersons. Beyond the biographical parallels, there was a shared vibe. She reminded him of the person he was, rather than the person he was trying to create. She made him remember he wasn't Romeo Blue. He was actually Lenny Kravitz. Maybe it was time to figure out who that was. At the end of the night, Lenny got her number and the two stayed in touch. They hung out when he was in New York, which was about half the time. Sometimes he'd meet her at the Cosby Show set after a shoot and they'd walk around Queens. In that piece for Interview Magazine, Lisa's boyfriend didn't get a name check But Romeo, still her nickname for Lenny even as he started to use it less and less, did. Despite taking Romeo as his stage name, Lenny was no player. When he was a kid, he caught his dad on the phone, moving a big chunk of the money his mom earned out of the family bank account and into the account of his side girl. He had never felt that kind of betrayal and rage in his life and it galvanized a simple conviction in him. A real man doesn't cheat. But you can stay faithful with your body and be fickle with your heart." And Lisa was making him question his own engagement. The poles of Lenny's life switched alignment when Lisa moved to L.A. to film her new show, A Different World, on the same soundstage where his mother had once played Helen Willis, one half of the first interracial married couple on television. Before that, they saw each other when they were both in New York, with Lenny's fiancé either joining them or at least never more than a subway ride away. Now, Lenny visited Lisa in LA, and his fiancé was on the other side of the country. Temptation was strong, and if Lenny didn't realize it, his fiancé did. He was packing to head out west for a couple gigs and the inevitable visit with Lisa when she pulled him up short. She couldn't do this anymore, she said. He had to give up Lisa. The worst ultimatums are the ones where the or else is unspoken, implied. Lenny knew the right thing to do. They hadn't taken vows yet, but knew the line about forsaking all others. He didn't want to lose her, but he couldn't promise he wouldn't go see Lisa while he was in L.A. She broke off the engagement, and he got on a plane. That night, he crashed on Lisa Bonet's couch. Things didn't happen all at once, but it didn't take long. Their first kiss in a recording studio hallway felt inevitable and electric. Lenny was still a nobody, while Lisa was one of the biggest stars on television. A Different World didn't have the ratings numbers of The Cosby Show. Nothing had the rating numbers of The Cosby Show. But in its way, it was even more revolutionary. It was a wholly new vision of Black youth culture. And if it smacked a little too much of Bill Cosby's vision of how Black youth should behave, it was still a radical counter-narrative to the media portrayal of young Black lives. Lisa Bonet, still only 19, was at the center. On her 20th birthday, the couple laid in bed. She didn't have to be on set, He'd avoided booking work so they could have the whole day. You know I'd marry you, he told her. I'd marry you too, she said offhandedly. They had that inevitability about them. Everything was bound to happen. I mean, right now, she said. She cocked an eyebrow at him, like a dare. Let's go, he said. Right now wasn't an option in California. Where blood tests and marriage licenses were required, but Las Vegas was a short flight away. That night, they were in front of the proprietor of the Chapel of Love, In My Life by the Beatles playing as they took their vows. Lenny's first engagement had lasted over a year and ended in a split. This time, he made it from will you to I do in a day. The Chapel of Love's owner sold the story and a copy of the Mirror Certificate to the National Enquirer, escalating a contentious relationship between Lisa and the tabloid that would quickly lead to a $5 million lawsuit over a stolen baby photo. And about that baby. Lisa finished shooting the first season of A Different World when she found out she was pregnant. The prospect of sharing the joyous news with her TV dad was terrifying. She needed an ally and found one. In response to criticism of the first season, A Different World had brought on Debbie Allen as a producer and director and tasked her with bringing more political content to the show. Allen was a massive talent with multiple Emmy nominations for her work on Fame. She was also the older sister of Lisa Bonet's television mom, Felicia Rashad, not to mention an old friend of Lenny Kravitz's real mom. Alan was thrilled when Lisa told her the news, and not just because a beautiful couple was about to bring a baby into the world. The pregnancy was an opportunity to do something revolutionary with the show. Black single mothers were one of the most vilified groups in American media, The guy in the White House had punctuated his campaign speeches, pushing the mythical existence and prevalence of welfare queens. Black single mothers who gamed the system, collecting government checks under a litany of fake names, eating lobster while their children cried for food. Here was a chance to show an educated, upper-middle-class Black girl making the choice to become a single mom. Debbie Allen and Lisa Bonet worked out the pitch together and made an appointment to meet Cosby in his office on The Cosby Show set in New York. When they walked into his office, Cosby didn't even look up from his work. You're here to tell me you're pregnant, he said sternly. Rather than wait for congratulations that weren't coming, Lisa Bonet and Debbie Allen launched into their pitch. They mapped out Denise Huxtable's arc for the second season of A Different World and Beyond. They explained that, just like The Cosby Show had given America a new way of looking at a Black family, this plot could kill off the prevailing media image of single Black mothers as welfare-dependent scam artists. Cosby listened and, with chilling finality, said, Lisa Bonet is pregnant, Denise Huxtable is not. That was the word given. Lisa Bonet was fired from a different world, and Debbie Allen was tasked with restructuring the still-fledgling show without its iconic star. Bill Cosby was never able to control Lisa Bonet, but he had a sort of godlike power over Denise Huxtable. He used the role like a cudgel to punish Lisa. Cosby offered Lisa a chance to come back to the brownstone in Brooklyn Heights, but it would be on his terms. Denise Huxtable was written back into the show as a college dropout. They hid Lisa's pregnancy under gawky clothes and behind the Huxtable family couch. When Lisa went on maternity leave to give birth to Zoe, the show explained it by sending Denise to Africa for a year. Denise Huxtable came home with a surprise husband and an adorable stepdaughter since the show's youngest sibling had aged out of that particular type. The Welcome Back episode was a mirror-warped vision of Lisa's actual elopement and pregnancy. But Denise wasn't married off to some scruffy wannabe rock star. She married a Navy man, like her TV father, and not, coincidentally, like Cosby. Both her television parents took turns and joined up, lecturing her on how she was throwing away her life before allowing her and her new stepdaughter to move back in. It felt like forcing Lisa to perform public penance for her marriage and pregnancy, an apology for the harm she'd done to her television family. Audiences were happy to see Denise back in the fold, but on set, it was clear Bonet's return wasn't working out. Citing creative differences, Cosby fired her from the show, and Denise was unceremoniously written out. When the show's finale aired, She was the only core cast member who didn't return. Denise phones into the Huxtable home, her voice unheard by the audience. She tells them she's pregnant, and each family member takes a turn congratulating her, except her television father. In the wake of her leaving the show, Cosby publicly praised Lisa's acting abilities, but a whisper campaign labeled her as difficult. New roles weren't forthcoming, but Lisa had taken on a role more important to her as Zoe's mother. Lenny's star, meanwhile, was ascendant. His first album, Let Love Rule, with two songs co-written by Lisa and practically everything else done by himself, went gold. And the follow-up, Mama Said, went platinum. But there was space growing between Lenny and Lisa. Lenny co-wrote and produced Madonna's Justify My Love, A dark, smoldering trip-hop number with a video too hot for MTV to play. People saw smoke and assumed fire. There were rumors that an affair between Lenny and Madonna broke up the marriage, but the truth was quieter, better fit to the life Lisa was settling into than the one Lenny was building. They'd fallen in love young and grown apart. Lenny's musical attempt at reconciliation. The soulful It Ain't Over Till It's Over was his first top ten single, but then it was, in fact, over. The two remained dedicated parents to Zoe, but their time as a couple was over. Lisa and Zoe moved to Topanga Canyon, one of the more bucolic spots in L.A.'s outer orbit. She took on roles here and there, but seemed just as happy to have said goodbye to all that. She had two more children with actor Jason Momoa. Lenny Kravitz spent the 90s moving between the genres he loved, finding success as a soulful counterbalance to the grim sounds of grunge and alternative rock. In the new millennium, he moved into rarefied territory as a music icon and was introduced to new audiences through his acting role in the Hunger Games franchise. But this isn't about him. This is about Lisa Bonet, a free spirit who gave America 13 new ways of looking at a black girl, who made an indelible mark on popular culture, even while her powerful benefactor tried to keep her under his thumb, who saw behind his mask before the world did, who rejected his warped morality as she grew into a woman, and whose grace under professional and personal disappointments demonstrate even today a fundamental strength of character. This story is about a girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis. Scott Janowitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Bob Prohl. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovitz and Matt Teheany. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at AboutAGirlPod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Linette.